Hey everyone, as always, our BS podcast is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling sports and music tickets. SeatGeek makes buying tickets on your phone a total snap. Just two taps. You can instantly buy tickets to an event that same day, have your tickets delivered straight to your phone, and enter the event without ever having to print a ticket. With SeatGeek, there's no guesswork. Drop your old ticket app. Experience buying and selling tickets the way it should be to start using SeatGeek. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. We're also brought to you by Sling TV. Want a better, more affordable way to watch live TV? Sling TV has the best of live TV for just 20 bucks a month. Lose the long-term contracts, lose the hidden fees, and the extra equipment. You can lose that too. Instantly stream over 25 live channels on your favorite devices, including AMC, CNN, ESPN, and more. Watch the best of live TV for seven days free right now at sling.com slash Bill Simmons. We're also brought to you by The Ringer. We are covering this new Frank Ocean album like it's the uh, final round of the NBA playoffs. Some great stuff there. I also really, I read Shea Serrano's piece about Con Air sequels today and got super jealous about it. I wish he had consulted me. I had a lot of thoughts. I really think John Cusack should have been in each each sequel with his hair regenerating and growing. Uh, And and by the eighth one, he would have Kyrie Irving's hairline. I think that that would, would have been my one major ad I would have added. I also think they could have done a, an ESPN Con Air 9 where they're just in the Bristol car wash and, and mayhem ensues. Check it out, ringer.com. Check out our Ringer Podcast Network. You cannot check out a new episode of my HBO show any given Wednesday this week because we are off this week and next week. But you can go to uh, HBO On Demand, HBO Now, HBO Go. Check out the first eight episodes as well as a ton of uh, bonus content. We're putting up a couple new things uh, digitally on Wednesday. So check out for that. Uh, and finally, check out uh, theringer.com for our merchandise that we've been selling. Part of the proceeds go to charitywater.org. And we are off. Yeah. Clear enough for you. All right. <laughs> yeah. All right, it's my only friend who loves track and field. I have friends that like track and field, but I don't have friends that, that love track and field like Malcolm Gladwell does. We should also mention his smash hit podcast, Revisionist History, has finished all 10 episodes. They're all available on iTunes and wherever else you listen to podcasts. And you can read them at thenewyorker.com as well. And the New Yorker Magazine. Malcolm Gladwell, how are you? I'm delighted to be on your show again, Bill. It's been a while. Uh, you're also going to be on my HBO show in, in September, we should mention. So we're, we're steering this toward things that will topics that will be dead by the time my HBO show occurs. And I think the topic yeah. that will definitely be dead is the Olympics. Uh, I feel like it's already dying. This might be the last day that anybody would even be interested in hearing an Olympics conversation, but a lot happened. The window is, window is closing, yes. So one thing that I was fascinated by this time around, I mean, there's a lot of different subplots, but it feels like swimming and gymnastics have surpassed track and field in America from a human interest slash bar conversation slash things I talk about with my family standpoint. That was the opposite of the way it was when I was growing up. I always felt like track and field was more important other than Mark Spitz. I can't really remember a swimming moment from my childhood that, that stands out. I kind of remember Rowdy Gaines just cause his name was Rowdy. Uh, and with gymnastics, you know, obviously you had the Mary Lou Retton type moments and Nadia Comaneci, like gymnastics was always big. But I always felt like track and field mattered more. And especially 
uh, as as a kid in the eighties. I remember watching the World Championships in '83, and I think I think it was even on the cover of SI at that point. Carl Lewis, just all the characters we had in track and field. What's changed? Do you feel like it's changed, or am I crazy? You're not crazy. I mean, I do. Anyone who cares about track and field worries that its uh, fan sport in the U.S. is dying. Um, I mean, part of it is that the U.S. dominance. If you just look at the sprints. The U.S. used to it used to be routine that American athletes would win the 100, the 200, and the 400. Um, this year, on the men and women's side, you know, you have Jamaicans winning, you've got a South African winning the 400, you've got, I mean, so you, you have a, a, a real dilution in um, American hegemony in the sport, in the sport, and that might be part of it. Um, but also, the sport does a terrible job of marketing itself. I mean, it's. You can't. I mean, I, I was. I did this back and forth with Nick Thompson at the New Yorker, and I was saying I, I couldn't think of a sport that is worse run than track and field. And then, of course, I remember the NFL. But and boxing. It's like it's it's unbelievable how dumb the people running the sport are. They go out of their way to make it as boring as possible. Um, you know, like in the the real games, the track events, the stands were half full yeah. for most of the events, if that. And that's like, it's unbelievable that you would gather the best athletes in the world together for this extraordinary track meet and no one shows up. I mean, that tells you there's something deeply wrong with the, uh, and we were, Nick and I were talking about one of my ideas for, for fixing a real simple fix. And this is something that's being done with this series of miles that have been conducted uh, around the, the States this summer, that they let the people into the infield. Yeah. So when you're running the race, you're running through a wall of spectators. Oh, so wow. So the Olympics, they should, for the sprints, imagine if they put temporary stands, bleachers, on the infield facing the home stretch. So when Bolt's running, you know, the 100-meter final, there are thousands of people right, like right on the track, screaming and yelling. That's an experience that would make, you know, that anybody would show up for, right? It makes it smaller, and more intimate, so you give up some total number of spectators. But all of a sudden, you can communicate the emotional power of the sport. It's an intimate sport. You've got to see runners up close to appreciate what they're doing. It's not like it's not like soccer or football where you want the big um, you want the big perspective. It's like stuff like that. Just, I don't understand why they're not trying to fix it. So you got there's two separate conversations here. I, I like the in stadium experience is a good one to have first. Because I went in 2012. I was so excited to be in London for the track and field. I thought that it was going to... I'd been waiting my whole life to see track and field in person and see the high jump and the long jump and all these different things. And I never realized until I was there, it's a shit show. Like, if you're in the wrong seats, yeah, it's a giant football stadium. It's 80,000 seats. And I don't care how good your seats are. You might be on the opposite side of where the high jump is. And you have no idea what's happening. You can't see it. Can't see yeah. the long jump. You have no idea how far the guys go. And, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking, couldn't couldn't they just have, like, the high jump, the long jump, and the pole vault in their own kind of contained mini little stadium? Yeah, almost like Absolutely. How, like a, yeah, like a tennis stadium. That would be great. Yeah, long long jump, high jump, pole vault, triple jump. Uh, absolutely, they should. You have you need a those events. The high jump is if you're 
up close and watching it, it's unbelievably tense and exciting. Yeah. But it's meaningless if you're if you're you know way up at the top of the meaningless. Stands. Absolutely. It's, I, I had it's no crazy. idea. I had no idea it was happening. And you think like something like beach volleyball, which I think has has really um, increased in popularity, especially in the United States, and you know. A, a not so small part of it has to do with the fact that they're basically wearing band-aids for tops at this point. Their <laughs> outfits are getting more and more uh, Victoria's Secret-esque <laughs> each time. Um, it's like designed by Maxim. Oh, that's the poor, the, the one, I think she was from Sweden. She was pretty buxom and became like a whole internet thing that night. And then the next time she had a match, she had to wear the T-shirt underneath the thing because I think she knew. It was like... I don't know who those outfits are designed for, but it's it's basically Cinemax. Anyway, if you had beach volleyball just in the middle of this giant 80,000-seat track and field stadium, it was just going on as five other things were going on, I'm pretty sure beach volleyball wouldn't be as important. Yeah. And Nobody, Nobody's going to watch it. Yeah, yeah so, you have, I, so you, you're right. So how big would that stadium be for, let's say, high jump, long jump, pole vault, triple jump, that's it. Couldn't that be like need, a two thousand seat stadium? Yeah, you could. You could. I think. I think you could stuff all of that into uh, uh, one of those uh, mid sized tennis stadiums. You just have to maybe rearrange some seats, but uh, that the scale works there. Um, you know, and also I don't understand why they never experiment. So think about the jumps. I don't understand why people. Why two jumpers don't jump in the long jump simultaneously at the same time? Ooh, like, like why bo- not? Almost like bowling when if when they when people are in a bowling alley bowling simultaneously. <laughs> no, but you could say you have two people left in a competition. Why? I mean, why not experiment and see what happens if you have them both? You have a gun that you know you go ready set go, and they both done, and so you could tell instantly who's jumped further. Right. I, mean, I like that. Maybe that's a bad idea, but I don't understand not, why it is someone doesn't at least try it. Maybe that makes the the long jump way more compelling. I remember as a kid, and and maybe these are just sports that are better as TV sports, but obviously something's wrong because nobody really cared about the high jump or the long jump this time around. The 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 single biggest thing with track and field that's changed since I've been a kid is the long jump and how it used to be just one of the signature sporting events of my life and now I don't even I did, I got to be honest I don't even know who won this year I missed it yeah you know what's happening you know that the the jumps so there's a there's a huge conspiracy theory about this so in Carl Lewis's day Lewis would routinely jump close to 29 feet yeah. Um, high 28, mid, you know, mid 28 feet. Now jumpers, if you look in the Olympic competition, they're jumping high 26 at best, low 27. They've lost a foot. So what happened? Essentially, or a foot and a half. Well, I don't know. Nobody knows. So one, one argument is that drugs really helped you in the long jump. And so you take away doping and people can't do it anymore. That's the kind of cynical interpretation. The non-cynical interpretation is the best athletes just aren't going into the long jump anymore. They're going in. You know, both has made sprinting so much more glamorous that why would you wait? If you're, you know, could, could you say in bold if you wanted to try long jumping, potentially be the world record holder in the long jump? I don't know, maybe. But I can guarantee you he's never tried it. And that's maybe just a shift in the kind of um, popularity of the sport. But it's something between those two explanations. 
I love the fact that you don't think there's doping anymore this decade and that it was just the old days when people used to dope. I, I love it. It's great. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I love doping, it. Pa- doping patterns have shifted. Oh, so okay. If you go back to the 70s, every, you know, huge numbers of people are doing it. Through the 80s, I think it's, it gets, it's very specific to countries. They don't have out-of-competition testing. It's gotten a lot harder. If you're... If you were to, people didn't, don't understand this. If you're an American or British or European distance runner, somebody shows up at your door dozens of times a year, unannounced, and has you pee in a cup. Right? It's hard, and then they have a biological passport where they have an entire blueprint of your physiology on file. It's kind of hard to dope. You have to be if you're in a place where you can be found. It's, you know, you've got to be really, really good to get, away, to get away with it. It's not like the 70s anymore. So, the, you know, sometimes you, there's some argument, well, people, the reason they all train at high altitude in the mountains of Kenya is that it's really hard for, for a drug tester to show up unannounced, particularly since we know the Kenyans will call you the night before and tell you they're coming the next day. Right. That came out this year. Oops. But, uh, you know, I don't know. It's like... Uh, if you're Galen Rupp, the great American marathoner, there's no way there's no way he dopes. It's just impossible. Guy, guy, guy got tested out of competition like 50 times last year. I'm going to flip your argument around. I would say it's easier to dope now because isn't it's you can get to a testosterone threshold, right? They allow up to a certain amount. I forget what it is. Well, it's like I forget what it is for the Olympics, but you're allowed up to like three or four times your natural testosterone because they have to they have to factor in that some people just naturally produce more testosterone than other people. But remember, they have a biological passport, so they have a picture of baseline of what they assume is baseline. So we know if there's major deviations from baseline. So the it used to be that we were in an era where we set these limits. But now we've moved into an era where we say you can't deviate from your baseline. We can tell if you do something shocking to change your uh, Are we your sure biology. we can tell, though? Because when they looked back at all the samples from 2000 to 2012, when they had better technology to look back at it, and then it turned out a bunch of people had been cheating that they just didn't catch? Yeah. So, um, okay. Although I'm super – I think that there's more corruption at the uh, – uh, at, I think the corruption lies not with the sophistication of the doping itself. The corruption clearly lies in the administration of the doping. Yeah. In other words, the people, the officials running these anti-doping campaigns, we know from Russia, they're like taking cash, they're swapping samples, they're warning athletes. So I, I think the issue is, uh, can we get a... I don't think it's hard if everything's working properly. I think you can police doping pretty effectively. Look at cycling. So if you, the average times in the uh, Tour de France have dropped dramatically since the 90s. They're, and that's because of, they've controlled doping, or at least they've kept it within bounds. Um, and they cleaned up their act. And now it's time for other sports to do the same. So you think that times and stuff, because I haven't looked at this, you think that times there was a peak of like sprinter times, cycling times, long jump, uh, distance, all that stuff. That For we've... women. Oh. So this is the thing. This is this crucial point, which is at the core of all doping discussions and which people routinely miss, which is if you're a man 
and you dope, you can improve your performance a, a significant amount, but it's not large. Yeah. If you're a woman and you dope, you can improve your performance massively. Yeah. So th- there are male doping, uh, you know, Ben Johnson was a doper, but clean runners are today running way faster than Ben Johnson did in, in 1988. Uh, but on the woman's side, you know, Flo jo famously ran 10.49 in the 100 meters in 1988. Yeah. That record will never be beaten ever, <laughs> unless someone else takes a massive amount of drugs. Yeah. So women, for women, doping is infinitely more significant. So, so female, it's really hard to imagine that a lot of female athletic marks are going to be uh, eclipsed ever. Um, so, so you think but, like Carl Lewis in the 80s, we did that documentary for 30 for 30 in the second series. I think it was called 979. Was that the name of it? Yeah. You love that one. Yeah. I remember we did a podcast after that one. Um, it, it, it basically kind of proved that Carl Lewis was up to stuff. I, I don't think there's any doubt that things happened. Yeah. And then you look at the times and the distances and the things that he did. Um, how many times did he have braces? Twice? In his 20s? I love, I love the braces is the one. <laughs> I'm not sure that braces is a definitive sign, but nonetheless, I concede... It's not far-fetched. To there was a lot of circumstantial. Yeah, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that they kind of put together in that. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm a big believer in, bla- in braces, and I always look at the guy's lower teeth. I think the lower teeth, when the lower teeth start going crazy, that's a big HGH <laughs> indicator for me. Because that's what happens. The HGH. Simmons it, rules of doping. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I look at uh, there's indicators, and they don't always mean there's HGH, but certain things like. You definitely get that little nub between your eyes. Definitely seems like it grows a tiny bit. The uh, the back jawbone, knee, back be- knee's huge. Yeah, the back knee jawbone becomes more profound. Um, I'm always suspicious, and you know, uh, this isn't. I'm not saying that everybody who does this is cheating, but the the gross giant neck beard is always. I'm always suspicious why anyone would grow that because it's so ugly. You know, it's like, what's the motivation behind the neck beard? I don't totally get it. Uh, but anyway, so you think, you don't think that people can doctor their testosterone to get close to whatever the limit is, to give a little boost, but without going over. I think the science is better for that, right? You can basically get right Maybe, down but, to the number. So even if they're, so the kind of strategies, no, I, I should say that before I go any further that I, I'm not an expert on this and I am not. Right. I am by no means down with uh, cutting edge doping strategies. But my sense is that in areas where the drug testing administration is efficient and uh, honest, that the kind of stuff you can get away with is, on the, is pretty small. It's on the market. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, you know, do I think there's widespread doping in the NFL? Yeah, because I don't think that they have a clean and efficient uh, detection system. I mean, like, I think you can get away, with, and you've talked endlessly about in, how in the NBA, if you're, that you're, you're, once, you're, once you're tested once, you won't be tested again. Isn't that the rule? No, it's four times. I don't even think, I forget about the, what happens in the playoffs, but I think it's a free-for-all in the playoffs. Yeah, they, yeah. But in, unlike the NFL, the NBA, I think, would rather avoid a situation where one of their signature stars is caught doing something that would be terrible for that person and also the league. 
So, you know, where the NFL is just, we'll go on a witch hunt with one of the great quarterbacks of all time and a great human being, Mr. Tom Brady. Um, the, the NBA, I just don't think they operate that way. They have, you know, they're a business and their business is not just in the 30 teams and the competition, but in these 15 to 20 ridiculously yeah. marketable athletes per year. And they're not going to fuck with that. They're just not, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's not also, you know, there's a thing, the thing about running and doping is that doping tends to be used by people who are at a stage in their career where their performance is falling, right? So you can typically tell just by looking at times who's up to something fishy. Yeah. Um, these kind of mid-career, they're 28 years old and all of a sudden they're running, you know, 20 seconds faster. That, but in, in, in the NBA, it's really hard, or in football, it's really hard. I mean, it's not impossible. You see these guys have these breakout seasons at 28, 29. You can raise an eyebrow, but there are, it's just, it's just not as obvious. Right. So I feel like there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's an ability to get away with stuff in those sports that's just not. Um, well, and I also uh, think... But we haven't even talked about soccer. I mean, if there's ever a sport tailor-made for doping, it's soccer. Yeah, I think the, the we always feel like as Americans, when we talk about this stuff, we well, are not American, you're a Canadian. North Americans. When North Americans talk about this stuff, um, we always gravitate towards steroids, PD, and like the baseball, Sammy Sosa type of, you know, where you can see obvious effects and more power and things like that. The oxygen doping is is the one that, and EPO and things like that are the ones that I, I just don't feel like people know anything about and they don't understand what kind of benefits that would give a basketball player or a hockey I mean, I player. I think it would. So you, if you think about, to my mind, the biggest issue for a basketball player um, and is, uh, is how worn down they get over the course of a season, right? It's recovery. You know, there was I, that, would say I, re- I would say recovery and endurance are the yeah. two things but that season, basketball players have to worry about the most. And when we say endurance, what we mean is uh, ability to play at, at the same level in May that you are playing at in uh, in November. Yeah, and, and also um, like the ability to, if you're in a playoff series, to be able to play 43 minutes and then two days later play 43 minutes again. And yeah, those are 43 yeah. hard minutes in the playoffs. And I think that's... Yeah. That's where that's where the endurance comes in because you don't want your perform you don't want to just die in the fourth quarter like when I was growing up yeah. basketball players got tired in the fourth quarter you yeah know? and I think that's so those so there's a whole series of strategies that intelligent thought uh, players would use to combat those two problems and I, I I find it really really hard to believe that drugs like EPO which you know it, it's EPO is sort of a magic. It's a, it is a wonder drug. Yeah. I actually think that large numbers of old people should be on EPO. Not, a, not massive doses, but it is a drug that simply replenishes your oxygen-carrying blood cells. I mean, it just makes it gives you, in a very tangible way, more endurance. If, you're, if your elderly mother is tired walking up the stairs, I don't understand why people aren't saying there are, there are some legitimate strategies to combat that. So given this extraordinary drug's effects, um, if you were a soccer player, you, you know, at the end of the Premier League season, you're not on EPO? If you can get away with it, of course you are. Right. And it, we don't, we're not even positive it's that terrible for you unless you take too much of it. I think it definitely, 
don't they say it like thickens the blood and could lead to blood clotting? But I think that's yeah, if you're like totally overdoing it. Yeah. No, there's there are because the thing that the crucial thing, and by the way, the the um, the great book Tyler Hamilton, Lance Armstrong's uh, uh, colleague, uh, wrote a book on that is just a it is the most extraordinary. Uh, book about doping, in which he claims he's apologizing for his doping, and in fact, he justifies it so brilliantly. But the thing about about that level of elite performance is, when you are training at the level these guys train, the effect of training is to diminish your red blood cell count, and so you it's a it's natural that you just replace what you've lost with EPOS. They're doing they're replacing what they've lost and allowing themselves to work even harder. Yeah. Um, so it so it fits in seamlessly into the training schedule of an elite performer. That's why the drug has become such an issue in so many different sports. Well, but we also have all these different things that are legal, like the hyperbaric chambers, um, the Germany surgery where they take the, what do they do? They take the blood out and then they, they clean the cells and they inject it back in your knee. Uh, I had, I had the Germany procedure. Did I tell you this? No. Oh, cause you're, cause you're a runner. I'm a runner. I, I had a version of it. They took stem cells out of my uh, tibia and injected them in my femur. How did you feel so, after? Well, I'm, I'm, I was told to, to not to run for a month. The month is almost up, and we'll find out whether it worked. The guy, the doctor, did it hilariously. Says, I said, well, how many times have you done this? He goes, lots of times. I was like, well, does it work on people like me? And he goes, well, it works on 25-year-old NBA players. Of course, right. I'm 52, and I'm not an NBA player. So it's like, I don't know, we'll find out how much like a 25-year-old NBA player I am. I do think that these days, I remember I've told this story before in the podcast, but I was talking to uh, Maverick, who's LeBron's business partner, and he was just talking about how much money LeBron spends on his body and how he yeah. replicated the gym that the Cavs have in his house, and you know he's got a full-time trainer, and he's got chefs, and... He just treats his body like it's this $50 million mansion in the Hamptons that has a 15-person groundskeeper crew, you know? And that's yeah, just what yeah, he does. And yeah. you think, like, think about the guys in the 80s, Bird and Magic and Barkley and Moses, all these people. You know, Bird, Bird, I think, I, I, I pretty good confirmation, like, was just beer and cigs during the summer until like 1985 <laughs> like definitely would have some some butts during the summer and some yeah. Miller Lite. he has another four or five years on his uh career today if he plays let's take a quick break to talk about our friends at sling tv uh if you want a better and more affordable way to watch live tv and if you're a cord cutter and then and you're out there there are cord cutters out there Usually they're under 30 and they're smart and they realize that you don't have to pay money for channels that you don't watch, which is the way it should go in real life. Unfortunately, all these places, they make you pay for like 1,100 channels and maybe only watch 150 of them, 100 of them, 75 of them. Once well, Sling TV, you don't have long-term contracts, you don't have hidden fees, you don't have extra equipment. You just hook up online and you can stream 25 live channels on your favorite devices, including ESPN, AMC, CNN, and more. You can watch the best of live TV for seven days free right now at sling.com slash Bill Simmons. And even better, you can call yourself a cord cutter. It sounds like you're the member of a really smart club that's just smarter than everyone else. 
So chat slinktvsling.com slash Bill Simmons. And while we're here, let's talk about our friends at Trunk Club. Trunk Club mailed me clothes a while ago, and I'm still wearing some of them because I hate shopping. And you probably hate shopping too. Who likes shopping? I'm always suspicious of people who like shopping. It's more fun when people just mail you clothes and then you get to wear them, especially like, yeah, the different seasons, especially on the East Coast. Summer right now, t-shirts and shorts. But now you're getting into the fall. You got to wear some pullovers, some khakis, some jeans, some sweat, some light sweaters, long sleeve shirts. Well, trunkclub.com slash BS. You go there, you type in your measurements, share your likes and dislikes, get your own personal stylist. They'll pick your clothes from over 80 top brands. They'll ship them right to your door. Keep what you like. Send back what you don't like. It's not just another way to shop online. It's more than that. They even have stores in Dallas, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and D.C. You can go there, and you can find your stylist, and they will help you for free. It's not a subscription service. You get your own personal stylist. Shipping is always free, and you have 10 days to try on the clothes risk-free. So, get started today. Trunkclub.com slash BS. That's trunkclub.com slash BS. And start with your free personal stylist right now. Okay, back to Malcolm Gladwell. 25 years ago, a, a, the guy who wins six medals or seven medals is one and done. He, he belongs to one Olympics. Phelps belongs to three Olympics. And that's like really interesting. It, that, maybe that's why Isn't it four? like swimming where... I think, he, I think he belongs to... Well, he's... Four. Yeah, four Olympics. I, that's yeah. right, he's four. Yeah. yeah. I mean... <clears throat> That is like a really interesting, and maybe that's why it would allow swimming to rise in relative cultural importance, because it's a lot easier to relate to a sport when someone familiar is coming back year after year. It's a great point. I, and I think, you know, the three biggest stars of this Olympics were Michael Phelps, Usain Bolt, and Simone Biles. Simone Biles like yeah. was a lock. Everyone knew going into the Olympics, like she was just lovable. It was a, what are the odds she was going to resonate with America? A hundred percent. But Phelps yeah. and Bolt, yeah. the continuity of it was what made it special. And it did feel a little bit like, uh, you know, like the second three peat for Jordan or LeBron coming back from three one, where it's like the, when there's a familiarity with the person who's doing something great, it pushes it to another level. Phelps is yeah. somebody that for a decade, even though he was killing everybody in swimming, uh, nobody could really, he didn't really win anybody over as a personality. You know, he'd host SNL and be like, oh my God, this is awkward. I, I don't, he never really had uh, what we would call a sophisticated interview moment, anything like that. Any moment that kind of resonated in a way that didn't have to do with the swimming pool. Then he had some personal issues. And I think, I think something switched over these last four years with him and with fans and with Americans. And it had everything to do with just the continuity and the familiarity, you know? Yeah. That, and you get, you get to know, you get to know someone and the thing that felt really interesting. So one of the reasons he's so appealing to us is that he has that moment after 2012 where he has these series of crises. So we're with him long enough, not just to see this sustained pattern of excellence, but with him long enough to see um, him go through these crises. And yeah. so he becomes this, you know, it, you know, it gets a whole new dimension. He becomes a, a three-dimensional person. Right. That is, 
you don't get, you know, Mark Spitz was never a three-dimensional person because we met him, we literally met him on August 1st, and we said goodbye to him on August 15th, and that was it. Right, and you look at somebody like Ashton Eaton, who still doesn't matter to really anybody, even though he's probably the best decathlete ever, but I don't even think it's close. But if he came back and he won a third decathlon four years from now, now it's like, whoa, this guy's going to win three decathlons? That's crazy. I I think the casual Olympics fan might be interested in that. Phelps was great, too, because, and I actually talked about this with Chris Ryan on a podcast last week, but um, Phelps reached that point that I think it's so rare to watch an athlete get to when we have a history with them, we know they're great, and then they have this challenger, and you kind of want to see them vanquish that. It's like, how dare somebody challenge our great icon athlete? Oh, he's got to swat this person down. And then they do. And that's the final level. That's like that Jordan Tiger Ali, which I think this was the Olympics where he kind of moved into that group for me as somebody that just wasn't just, you know, probably the greatest ever at his sport, but had a couple moments where it was like, oh, really? You're going to you're going to challenge me. I'm going to I'm going to vanquish you right now. And then he did the vanquishing. And that's what was cool. I thought uh, this time around. That's why he won the Olympics. I feel like, don't you? I would rank yeah. him first. You'd rank? Oh, I, I mean, I would. I'm, I'm, I'm biased. I would rank Usain Bolt first, but um, you'd rank Bolt I, you over know, Phelps. Think, Phelps is like he's like washed up by swimming standards. It should be over. I, I, yeah, I, I, I have a track fan's suspicion of swimming, which is every time someone jumps in the water, they break a world record. Like, what, what exactly is the relationship? Between the sport and world records in swimming, such that I mean, it never it has. I, I bet you have never there has never been an Olympic Games where at least half a dozen world records in swimming didn't fall. It's unbelievable. They, so you're suspicious so, from a cheating standpoint, or just it doesn't no, make I'm, sense to you? It the performances. I don't think it. I don't think it's cheating necessarily. It could be. I have no idea. It's but it's something about the nature of the sport is such that. Uh, superlative performances are almost routine. Yeah. And to me, that ruins it. Like in track, you know, the, a lot of these, some of these records have been around for a long time. They're really hard. And when, when you watch that Wayne Van Nierick, the, the South African who wins the 400 meters and breaks Michael Johnson's record from that was, what, 18 years old? I mean, that mattered because that was an insane record. And no one was thinking it was going to get broken. It was, you know, Michael Johnson is such a kind of iconic figure in sprinting. And this guy in lane eight just comes and blows it away. It's like, wow. But in swimming, if Phelps doesn't break the world record, I would, I would be disappointed. I mean, I just can't get excited about something where, where, where the superlative is still routine. In person, the swimming wasn't that great. It was a slight disappointment for me because you, you can't tell who wins. I don't like any sport where I don't know who wins at the end of the sport. That's a problem. Whereas gymnastics was way better in person than I was prepared for. I remember I wrote about this four years ago, but it's just so much more dramatic. And even when there's like five events going at the same time, when something bad happens, it's the worst sound you've ever heard at a sporting event. It's like you would think Barbaro's leg just broken in nine places. If a gymnast falls off a balance beam, it is a horrifying collective moment. And by that same token, when somebody nails a routine, like it's it's really a moment. Like you feel it in the stadium, and it's great. 
Um, yeah. I don't, the parts that the Olympics has to figure out is when you have tennis and soccer and uh, golf and these sports where the pros can just make so much more money and it's almost not worth it for them to go. And I think basketball's in that spot a little bit now. Uh, yeah. What do you do? I, I think you, I think you, they have to drop those sports. They should definitely it, drop golf. I, I don't understand how golf even became a sport. Tennis. I yeah. feels like they should drop, right? Tennis has four majors. What do we need the Olympics for? Yeah. I don't, I, 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 I and they, by the way, they're adding five more sports for 2020. It, the Olympics is just run. It's 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 insanely badly run. Yeah, and it's just a bunch of people trying to greedy people trying to maximize their profit. They have to. You're abs- I don't think tennis belongs. I don't think golf belongs. And I think uh, basketball under certain certain circumstances belongs. But you you know there you, you have to at some point sort of draw a line around what you think an Olympic sport is, and where where you think you have real traditions that you're enacting and say we're done right that's what we're this is who we are we're just like tennis doesn't add another major every year like yeah. nor, nor does golf i mean and they don't it's, so it's like i don't know why why the olympics thinks that you can just sort of infinitely expand this model to infinity well that how dare you say they should get rid of basketball though you should take that back that made me upset i i've never last time i got excited about you know it, it I can't get excited about a, about a sport where there's a 95% probability the U.S. wins every year. And the only circumstance under which the U.S. wins is if they don't bring their best players. In other words, the whole, con- whole conversation about Olympic basketball is why didn't they bring so-and-so, which would have improved our chances of winning from 99% to 100%. Right. Like, how, why is that exciting? Well, it was more fun when they put real thought into the team and had role players and 12th man. I just think they, I think they construct the team wrong. Why is Harrison Barnes the 12th man? <laughs> I, I knew this was going to come up. <laughs> well, just why? Though? Like, why, why not get like, I don't know, one of the Zeller brothers. Like why, why do you need a good player to be the 12th man? Why can't you have more shooters? What it's, it's like they, they, I think cause they panic cause guys were dropping out. They basically just put together an all-star team. And so why do you need why do you need more basketball? Is it basketball? I mean, swimming we don't pay attention to it, you know, except once every four years. The Olympics is this is amazing a showcase of what's going on in that sport. Basketball, we have so much basketball now. You could argue the NBA season never stops. We people talk as much about the NBA in July and August as they do in March. I'm ashamed. You also isn't it piling on to have Olympics as well? I'm ashamed to admit this, but I probably watch more basketball than any other Olympic event. I think the women's the women's are a problem. Like they have to figure out the women's because we probably could have gone four on five for the first half of every game and still won the gold medal. Which is it was it was actually the greatest women's basketball team that's ever been assembled. It was three generations of players, and Tarasi's still in her prime, and she's easily the best women's player ever. I don't know. I don't even. You you could talk me into the women's basketball like the U.S. should not be allowed to send anyone who's over twenty two years old, something like that. And I, and I wouldn't mind if they did that. I did something on my HBO show about this a couple weeks ago. 
I really think we should make it a 25 and under team or a 23 and under team, whatever we have to do. It'd just be more fun to root for, and I think it'd be a better experience for the guys. But yeah, why can't you say we, we have too much basketball? I'm going the other way. We have volleyball and we have beach volleyball. So why couldn't we have, why couldn't the slam dunk contest be an Olympic sport? Why? What's the difference between that and beach volleyball? Why not? It's a spinoff of volleyball. Is beach volleyball? Yeah. So why couldn't we spin off basketball with two on two or three so on three do you basketball? Think the problem with the Olympics is that they don't have enough events. Then, sure, Expl- but I don't think that's the problem with the Olympics. Explain beach volleyball to me and why, if we have that, we can't have two on two hoops or three on three hoops. Uh, I don't. I have never understood beach volleyball, except as you said earlier, as a kind of venue for ogling perfect bodies. But um, I don't. I don't know. I don't watch it. I don't. I don't find it interesting. I actually. I find uh, the traditional volleyball way more interesting. That's thrilling and exciting. Beach doesn't do it for me. I thought the volleyball was too long. It, it just seemed like. That. Yeah, you turn it on and be like, oh, it's the second set. This is going for like two more hours. I don't know. I got bored. I remember in 84 Wait, that, that's watching a guy a who watches NBA games that takes 45 minutes to do the last five minutes of, of playing time. Well, that's... I mean, this is I'm glad you brought this rich. up. I'm glad you brought that up. I think there's so much to learn from the way FIBA, the flow of the game of these FIBA games versus what we have in the NBA. And I tweeted about this a couple of times. Um... First of all, the players, it doesn't seem like the players are allowed to call timeouts. It has to be the coaches, and it has to be during a stoppage, and they get less timeouts. So the game just goes. The way the yeah. substitutions are different, um, no 20-second timeouts. You have, if you get a technical foul, it counts as a real foul, which I think would be a great rule for the NBA. Anytime you have these stupid double technicals, I think guys would think twice if it also counted as a real foul. But the flow of the game was so much better, and especially you could feel it in the last three to four minutes of a game. And it made me think, like, you know, I've been obsessed with how the NBA could just get faster. And really it comes down to TV money. But the league makes so much money that they could finagle it a little bit for the good of the game. And this is something that I think Adam Silver, who's been the best commissioner the league's ever had, and one of the best sports commissioners ever already. Hopefully it stays that way. This is something that I wish he cared more about because mm-hmm. there's lots of easy ways to make the game move faster. I get rid of 20 second timeouts. If you've ever been to an NBA game, you know that a 20 second timeout is a minute and a half. It's not, it's not yeah. a 20 second timeout and there's no reason to have it. Um, but they have set timeouts at the six-minute mark and the three-minute mark of every first and third quarter, and then the 10-minute mark, six-minute mark, and three-minute mark of the second and fourth quarters, not to mention all the other timeouts the coaches are allowed, which I think it's like seven for each team, but sometimes some of the some of the planned timeouts count toward the seven. Uh, also, the 20-second timeouts. It's so fixable. And, and one of the things I think they should experiment with is when people are shooting free throws. Because if you watch like ESPN and ABC when they show games, sometimes people will be shooting free throws and they'll do the wide shot and they'll promote something. So it'll be like, oh, there's DeAndre Jordan. He's going to the line. Hey, coming up Tuesday, it's a new 30 for 30. It's Doc and Daryl. And, and it'll be an ad as the guy's shooting free throws. 
and nobody cares and nobody notices that they're running an ad when the guy's shooting free throws because it's fucking boring to watch somebody shoot free throws. So yeah, yeah. if well, they if they pick also- their spots with that and they had in-game kind of native advertising during the free throws, you could get rid of those 10-minute timeouts in the second and fourth quarter. That saves us six minutes and the flow of the game's better. I also think I, – I would think you could go further. I think the fouling – the second second issue in the last five minutes, of course, is the fouling. Yes. And I'd like to see a situation where, with two minutes left, you have you revert to soccer rules. If somebody comes out, they can't go back in. <laughs> oh, I like it. I, I think it'll be super interesting. I because I want to see people. This is what I don't understand. I want to see players exhausted at the end of games. I yeah. think that's interesting. And so this. This constant subbing in, subbing out, foul the guy, sit him down, send him back in. To hell with it. Let's if you if 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 he's if he comes out, he's gone in the last two minutes. And now let's play. Show me your. And, and what if we? Uh, what if we said? What would happen? And I, I think I would do this as an experiment. Yeah. But just to see, what if we just said no timeouts in the last two minutes? Why? Well, I, I mean, at the very least, you should not be able to call a timeout after a timeout. I don't know why that's not yeah. a rule. How am I calling yeah. a timeout when I'm already in a timeout? So it's like a double timeout? Yeah. We just had There's a timeout. a great out. Hollywood phrase for that. Do you know, you know the phrase? It's called a hat on a hat. Right. <laughs> a hat on a hat is, is an idea that is made worse by the idea that comes after it. Right. So, so yeah, a timeout after a timeout is a hat on a hat. Here's the thing. If I call a timeout to design a play where I'm going to inbound the ball and run an offensive play, we come out of the timeout. And the guy who's supposed to inbound the ball, my guys screw up and they can't find it. Oh, oh, it's chaos. Don't reward them by giving them a bailout with a second timeout. That's it. Yeah. We had a, t- a timeout for them. Now they have to get the ball in. If they don't get the ball in, the other team gets the ball. Like, let's go. Let's move. Yeah. By the way, the chaos from a spectator standpoint is really interesting. Right? Right. I mean, watching, watching players cope with incredibly high pressure situations in the flow of the game is why you watch basketball so why are we why do we devise something that takes away the pleasure of the of the spectator well the other thing there there wasn't nearly as much instant replay with FIBA and I I just think instant replay has been a failure I hate it I think it ruins the flow of the game I think these games are way too long I my conspiracy theory and I hope I'm not right is that they've done studies and it's actually good for the games to be longer because it's more commercials. The longer these games are, more commercials, more people going to buy food and drink, stuff like that. And I remember talking to Adam about this. To me, I never feel like halftime's long enough. Halftime's like mm-hmm. 15 minutes. And if, mm-hmm. if you have halftime, you go, you watch the first half, you go up, you go up, maybe you get a drink, you go to the bathroom, you get food, whatever. And then all of a sudden the game's starting again. And it's almost like, oh man, I wish we had five more minutes. That should be your 10, 10 minute timeout in the second and fourth quarters. But the answer is the halftime commercials aren't as valuable as the in-game commercials. Well, here's my question about commercials. And I don't, I don't know enough about uh, the ad business to answer this correctly. But it's a question for someone who does. Yeah. If I have, let's say for the sake of argument, I have in the course of a basketball game, a typical basketball game, 40 ads, yeah. and I sell them all for a dollar, so I get $40. If I, have, if I shorten my basketball game, 
and I make it way more exciting. And now I have 20 ads. Why can't I sell the 20 ads for $2? Don't ads become more valuable when they are more scarce? Particularly when you have a product like the MBA, which is so extraordinarily uh, popular. Well, so a, I mean, not to, know, get, a lot of re- not to get too that? meta, not to get too meta, but I found, you know, obviously we, we have sponsors during this podcast. We could have 10 sponsors. We could, we, you and I could talk for five minutes and every five minutes we'd have, you know, another one minute sponsor. You would, just that, would that be a better, sports radio. yeah, but that, <laughs> would that be a better product or a worse product? It'd be by far a worse product. And I think the NBA is in this middle ground right now where, well, first of all, they're not getting the money from the ads. So it's like, let's say the Celtics sell. Well, the Celtics are a bad example because they own part of their cable network. So let's say like uh, the Nuggets, uh, they own their own cable network too. Who doesn't? The Milwaukee. Milwaukee sells yeah. their rights to uh, Fox Sportsnet. Who, know, who knows who has their thing? So Fox Sportsnet buys 20 years of Bucks games for a price. Now they can do whatever they want with the ads unless the NBA changes how you play the games. Now, could Fox Sportsnet say, well, wait a second. We, but we spent all this money on these games, and now you're saying you're taking out two commercial breaks that we thought we were paying for? They're not going to do that because anyone who's well, paid for basketball games got a great deal on them because the NBA is the hottest sport right now. Yeah, but except, except if Adam Silver were able to prove to them that by speeding up the game, you would raise ratings. So I think, I think that's a very, that is a very, very plausible outcome. That if you did what we're talking about, and if the last 10 minutes of every game was wildly exciting and went really, actually took 10 minutes, um, you know, I, I, for one, the number of basketball games I would watch if they fulfilled these conditions we're talking about would go way up. So what if I can, what if Silver says, I think I can deliver 20% higher ratings if I shorten the game and change these rules around timeouts? And then, then Fox, the advertisers have no beef. They love it. They, they would make more, like I, like I say, it makes the individual, it makes a smaller number of commercials in a shorter game more valuable, and that offsets the, uh, uh, the lost revenue. Don't you think one of the reasons soccer has become more and more popular in the United States, not just because of the wide TVs and the HD, but because it's a contained amount of time? It's like, oh, I'm watching Manchester United play Arsenal, the game's starting at 7.30. At 9.30, the game's going to be over. I know the game's yeah. going to be over. That's it. So at 9.30, I'm going to now do this. If I watch a basketball game, it's like Nick's Thunder. Uh, it's starting at 7.30. I, I hope it's over by 10. Might yeah, end at like 10.20. Could go, could go yeah. like two hours, 45 minutes. But it, it, it would, you would seem like if I'm ESPN or TNT and I have a double header. And my first game starts at eight, and I know that second game. Well, they would start the first game would start. Yes, first game starts at eight, and I know the second game was definitely starting at ten fifteen and ending at twelve thirty. And now my inside the NBA show is coming on at twelve thirty. Like that's what I'd want, and I I really do feel like they've looked at this, and it's better for for them for the games to be longer because football is the ultimate model, right? Football, you have 60 minutes of action that takes three hours and 20 minutes to play. Yeah. And it makes no sense. I think you're you're imputing a level of rationality to these guys that may not exist. I don't think they have 
properly, empirically answer the question of how much ratings would increase, audience size would increase if the game was structurally altered. Right. I, I think that I think there's a really strong case to be made that there's more money to be made in a faster, more appealing product. Um, because what happens is they just get lazy. They just they, the, the easiest short-term way to make money is to add more commercials. But what you don't see, what you don't understand, is how is how the quality of the overall product is degrading over time. Um, there's well, a great um, okay. analogy to this. Yeah. Somebody was ta- was talking to me about um, some guy in the package good business was talking about. I think it was Folgers Coffee, which used to be incredibly high quality coffee. Believe it or not, like way yeah. back in the seventies or whatever. And every year they would. They would they would say, well, do people notice the difference between, you know, ninety five percent coffee and ninety three percent coffee? And the answer would be no. So they would take it down to ninety three percent. And then the next year they would say, is, do they notice the difference between ninety one and ninety three? And the answer is no. So they take right. down ninety one. And pretty soon they're at sixty, and they're selling shitty coffee, right? Well, that's the situation we're in now. You there's a kind of broader meta degradation that takes place um, over time that you don't see in these incremental moments. Well, it's almost like with gas, where they have the three different gases you can buy from when you buy gasoline. It's like 87, 89, or 91. It's like, uh, it's, could I use 87? Is that really going to hurt my car? Like, do I use 89? Usually, when you have a rental car, you always use the 87. Yeah, exactly. For the, yeah, yeah, for the, so I think Hack-A-Shack's another one where... Hack-A-Shack's an easy fix, right? Everybody's like, how do we fix this? What, what are we going to do? Like, how do we get rid of it? Um, you have referees that all the times are making judgment calls of like, is that a flagrant foul? Is that a normal foul? Things like that. This is a judgment call. If somebody's intentionally fouling DeAndre Jordan away from the ball, just give them the power to call that an illegal foul. And it's two free throws on the ball. Now that's not happening anymore. You know? Yeah. And and, and if you have to make it more of an art to intentionally foul DeAndre Jordan... And it's like, oh, it's a charge, you know, somebody's setting a pick and I just foul him as he's as he's setting a pick on me to send him the line. Great. That's part of basketball. It shouldn't be part of basketball to just run up behind somebody and hug them. It's ridiculous. The other fix, of course, is that DeAndre Jordan could actually practice his free throws. Right. Is which that, is which is, is so hard. I know, but that's the argument against allowing hack a shack is you can't create a rule that that basically helps seven people. Because really, it's like seven people in the league just are terrible at shooting free throws. So yeah, you can't you I can't create a rule to fix that, but you should create a rule if you're going to have uh, what's that stupid foul they have when uh, oh clear path. You have that foul. You have flagrant fouls. You have all these different things, but you have no foul for or you have no penalty foul for just grabbing somebody who has nothing to do with the play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I feel like all the I. I honestly am starting to wonder if all of this is about extending the game and keeping people in the arena longer, keeping them watching the telecast longer. It just feels it feels off to me because all this stuff's so fixable and they don't care. You know? So you're making this, now you're making the case for that you should be the next NBA commissioner. Get, no, it, it's no great. longer about you being a GM. My dream is for Adam to take over the NFL and Barack Obama to be the new NBA commissioner would be my dream. And I would like to be Barack Obama's assistant as he, as he saves basketball, which is already saved because Adam did a great job, but we really need Adam to run the NFL. I think Adam would do a great job. 
quick break to talk about the people that have saved my face. Harry's. The first razor I've actually liked. I've had a tortured history with razors ever since I started shaving when I was like uh, 15, 16. Probably spent three years shaving when I didn't have to shave just to feel like more like a man. But then when that hair starts coming in, uh, my neck just got ravaged. And I would try everything. I would try Gillette. I would try Chic. All these different uh, over-the-counter places. None of them worked. I ravaged my face for 30 years. Tried some different things. And then finally, Harry's sponsored the BS podcast. I started using the Harry's razor. And it's the first one that my face actually is not uh, beaten up after I shave. It has really helped my life. And the million little shave gels, shaving creams, all kinds of things. They have razors that make sense. Not like these 15 head razors that actually, you know, they're razors that when you look at it, it's not like looking at a lawnmower or something. It's really just $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more that you'll pay at a drugstore. A trimmer blade for hard to reach places. A lubricating strip. When does life not need a lubricating strip? I certainly can't think of a time. Uh, and you also have quality that is 100% guaranteed. If you don't lose, if you don't love your shave, Harry's will fully refund you. Check it out. You can get a Harry's starter set. It's an amazing deal. You get a weighted razor handle of your choice, a shave cream, three precision engineered five blade cartridges, and a travel cover, all for just 15 bucks. And for a limited time only. A special offer for fans of the show where you can get it for less. Harrys.com. Right now. Code BS. $5 off your first purchase. We forgot to talk about Ryan Lochte. Oh, my God. So, yeah. So, Lochte, this is... So, I, I know you might disagree with me on this, but I think there are... That to, be, to be an elite athlete, the striking things about elite athletes, particularly in these practice-intensive sports, is that they are, they are rarely dumb. You can't be dumb and be that disciplined and that focused. And discipline and focus overlap so much with what it takes to be a thoughtful human being. Right. But that's why when you, when you meet all these athletes, they're not dumb. I mean, they're, they're, the thing about Lochte that's so strange is that somebody slipped through. <laughs> In some bizarre way, we have an individual who is disciplined and focused enough to be, you know, a world-class swimmer, but in every other aspect of his life, a doofus. Right. But this is, this is, he's kind of like this weird, like, laboratory specimen of somebody who broke the mold. He's, I mean, we knew he was dumb from four years ago when he did the reality show after the 2012 Olympics, which I'm still not totally sure what the point of that show was, but even for reality shows, it was dumb. Like, you know, when the yeah. reality show audience is like, wow, this is too stupid for me that you've really made history with some, with a dumb athlete. I thought, uh, I, I, I guess I, I'm 46. I shouldn't be surprised by this stuff anymore. I thought the amount of time, attention, publicity, everything that was devoted to that story was way out of whack and yeah. I get it, but I thought it overshadowed the second week of the Olympics. Yeah, you know? it was great. I mean, it was. It was lofty they were, first. I mean, they had. I was watching those the the that four hour NBC roundup every night, and you know there was even with four hours there was a limited amount of time to show everything that mattered, and they were devoting five ten you know a segment to Ryan Lochte at the expense of actually showing 
the Olympics that they have exclusive rights to broadcast. Right. It's like, they, why don't they just concede the Ryan Lochtan story to everybody else and say our job here is to show you the athletes? Don't be crazy. Nice. Yeah, that would have been nice. There was, there was one, I mean, as a track fan, the, they did a big Lochte story and as a result did not show one of the 1,500-meter semifinals, which is unreal. Like, yeah, that's, that's one outrageous. of the marquee events of the games, and you're not going to show me the semis? I mean, I realize I'm, I may be in a small minority on this one, but I was absolutely furious. So the 1,500, the American won it. Yeah. Matt everyone, everyone acted like it was kind of an upset, a surprise. You, you didn't think it was a surprise. You said all the track nerds thought he had a real chance. Well, he had... So it's interesting. The 1,500 meters, the thing you have to understand is that world-class milers never run, when they run the normal races on the European circuit every summer, every time they run a race, there's a rabbit. There is someone who has paid a pile of money to take them out in the first two or three laps at a predetermined pace. Yeah. So they always run under ideal, um, predictable conditions that are dictated by them. So the best the best runner in the world, who's the guy named Ashbel Kiprot, the best miler, goes to the meet director and says, I want the rabbit to take me out, and he tells them what time, right? In the Olympics, there are no rabbits. So all of a sudden, you have runners racing under conditions that are incredibly unusual. They, Ashbel Kiprop has, in, or many of all the guys in those races, you can count the number of unrabbited races they run over the course of their career on you know, one hand, it's basically just the champion, just the national championships in the Olympics. So it, point number one is it's already weird. So they're in this situation. They don't know what to do. So what do they do? They go out and they jog the first two laps. So they turn a mile into a half mile race. Yeah. I, they ran so slowly over the first two laps that I could have kept up. You know, <laughs> I, I am. You Especially know, after your surgery. Yeah, 50. no, your surgery. You can definitely keep up now. So, so right away, once that happens, all bets are off. It's a completely different race. And so the and tactics start to matter hugely. The race went not to the fastest runner, but it went to the smartest runner. And we've known for four or five years now that one of the smartest milers in, of the past generation is this guy, Matthew Sensowitz, this American guy who is just time and time again, is always in the right place at the right time. And he clearly, over, as he realized the race was being run so slowly, put himself in the absolute most advantageous position and just ran, I mean, a textbook race. It was just like watching him. It was like unbelievable to see how he was just one step. He was like, he was a chess, chess grandmaster who was one step ahead of his opponents. Yeah, he somehow um, got on the inside. And he knew he had to Got make on the, the one move where he bumped the guy a little bit, but just enough that it was legal and snuck in. And normally, all of a sudden, he's on the remember, inside. No, in a normal race, run at a normal pace, being on the inside with two laps to being in the front with two laps to go is not a, necessarily an advantage at all. Why? It might even be, a, it's probably a disadvantage because you're doing all the work. Okay. Um, but he was like, he was like, wait, the rules have changed. And he also, I think, trained. I think uh, the other thing I think he did is he 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 did he trained in such a way he was anticipating a very 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 slow race that was essentially run over the last 400 meters and that changed the way he prepared. It was just a kind of it was a textbook example about how it is it is a uh, preparing for the Olympics it, it takes a lot more than it appears. I mean you 
it, there really is a huge amount of thought that, that goes into it. Doesn't it seem like he should have been a slightly bigger deal? Was disappointed. I thought that was awesome that we won the 1500. Yeah. I mean, that's not we, you're Canadian. Your no, no. Well, yeah, I'll take it though. I mean, I'm a fan of his. Yeah. Uh, I met him years ago when I, when I was doing a story on his coach, I, uh, I was interviewing Alberto Salazar, his coach, while Centrowitz was doing 200 meter repeats yeah. at blinding speed on the track behind him. And I, he runs so effortlessly. Well, he's one of the most beautiful runners I've ever seen. It's just kind of, you can't believe he's going as fast as he is. Even in the last lap of the Olympic final, you would, if you looked at him in isolation, you would have said, oh, he's, he's just kind of going out for a decent-paced run. And then you yeah. look at the time, and you realized he ran 50 seconds for the last 400 meters. Um, but, yeah, he should have been a – that goes to the point about track just doesn't command our attention the way it used to. In 19 – in, if this was 1972, he would be on the front page of Sports Illustrated. He'd be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, Prefontaine is one of my uh, weird deep dive obsessions. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll go back in. I loved Without Limits. I, I, it's one of my 10 favorite sports movies. I really mm-hmm. thought it was just so well done and great. Donald Sutherland's awesome. Crudup's awesome. That race that, you know, basically tormented him for the next two years in the 72 Olympics. Mm-hmm. is and you know way more about race than I do but it's a fascinating race and the movie does a great job of breaking down you know he he basically ran the last I think the last lap was as fast as he could go and it still wasn't enough just because of the way the race broke and he made his move and he got blocked at one point um and we you, and we think the winner was a doper and the winner was probably a doper 72 right yeah, yeah that's they they yeah. had that stuff back then what was your favorite race because I know you watch all this stuff in this Olympics, just from a strategy, how it broke down kind of standpoint. Was it was it the 1500? Well, uh, that, I also, there's a, the marathon was one run by one of the kind of biggest badasses in running, this guy named Elihu Kipchoge, this Kenyan guy who is so good. And so, and he turns, so he's running, there's three people running that are together at sort of mile 22. Yeah. Four, mile, four miles left, Galen Rupp and this Ethiopian named Lisa and Kipchoge. And, and they're all terrified of Kipchoge because he's so good. And they, he, he, he runs a little bit ahead of them at, a water, at the water stand to get his water. And they think he's going to, you know, they get a little concerned. And Kipchoge turns around and says, don't worry, guys, I'm not taking off yet. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, after the race. Galen Rupp was like recounted that story, and basically, so we're at mile twenty-two of the of the marathon, and Kipchoge is trash talking his competitors. I mean, it's just fantastic. Wow! I, that was watching it. It was just kind of he was he, and they just put the hammer down, and no one could stay with him. Uh, but that was an extraordinary performance. He's a he runs the, at no time during the entire marathon did he look like he was tired. He looked as fresh in mile twenty-six as he did in mile one. And he ran, he threw down between miles of 21 and 25. He was basically running as as fast as anyone has run that stretch of a marathon. What about our dude Mo Farah falling down and then getting up and still winning the race pretty easily? Wasn't that amazing? Yeah, that was, well, that's because they were, that was a tactical question. You know, you they were running so slowly at that point that it was possible for him to catch up, which is why you would run at that such a pace when you're trying to beat Mo Farah is another is a really good question. I mean, nobody else, nobody wanted to 
to run a proper race. Like, the only way to beat him is to run a proper race, and they wouldn't run a proper race. So, like, what happens? He falls down and he still beats them. I mean, the collective stupidity of runners sometimes is hard to imagine. If we had pound-for-pound track and field uh, runners like we had track and field runners, if we had pound-for-pound runners slash sprinters slash distance guys like we have boxing where they're like, you know, Floyd Mayweather is number one pound-for-pound boxer. Who is the number one pound-for-pound runner uh, slash sprinter slash distance guy right now? If you had to do your rankings. You mean right now or in the last? If if you were going to say the last. Uh, coming out of the Olympics. Coming out of the Olympics. Who's pound for pound the say, best? <laughs> such a good question. Yeah. I mean, in the in London, I would have said Allison Phoenix, Felix. Uh, oh. This time around, I would say it's. Uh, I would say probably Mo Farah. Mo Farah is world class at every distance from the fifteen hundred meters to the marathon. Right now, he could <laughs> fifteen hundred to the any marathon. One of those races. Really. Yeah, ran a marathon, I think, last year and ran, like, a time faster than the winning time in the Olympics this year. I mean, admittedly, it wasn't, uh, the Olympics were, uh, it was, you know, it was super muggy and stuff. But, uh, no, Mo Farah is uh, the first runner in a long time who, within the space of two years, can compete at the absolute highest levels in everything from one mile to the marathon. So pound for pound, I don't think anyone else is close to him. Wow, he's a. I mean, he's a good enough credit. He is. You're witnessing when you're watching Mo Farah. You're witnessing one of the most extraordinary distance running running talents of all time. That was one of my 2012 revelations. Was seeing him in person and seeing how excited the crowd was for him. You know, so, and I mean, he's just so watching him do his thing. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't prepared for the the long distance races to be as much fun in person. They're actually better in person than long jump, high jump, and. Some of that stuff. I mean, 100 yard dash is still yeah. the pinnacle. That's one of the best spectator experiences I've ever had in my life. And to to even see Usain Bolt, you've seen him in person, right? Haven't you? Never have. Oh no, yeah. I've seen I've seen Mo Farah in person, but never uh, never Usain. Oh, I mean, man. even though oh boy, Usain's from he's 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 one of my fellow Jamaicans. I, I it's know. a tragedy. He, I, I mean, we've talked about the the Jamaican team before so it's I don't want to just rehash it but it is incredible how big is Jamaica 2.5 million people so what's that like Connecticut it's, no uh, bear, uh, no I think it's bigger maybe you know maybe it's Connecticut Rhode Island it's it's maybe Rhode Island yeah it's, it's on it's on in in that it's in that territory no the place is tiny and and don't forget like tons of sprinters from other countries like America, England, and Canada are, of, are are like either born in Jamaica or their parents are born in Jamaica. So it's not just Jamaica, right? The greatest spinners in Canadian history have all been Jamaicans. The guy who won set the world record and won, well, Ben Johnson, but also the guy who, uh, who uh, I've forgotten his name, who won in 1992, Jamaican. I mean, it's tons of Jamaicans. It's, it's really kind of... Uh, it, it's really kind of strange, and it's hard to explain. Well, you, we did a back and forth, I think, like four or five years ago, and you were explaining how would you, there was some term for it, some fancy term, some fancy Gladwell term about when maximizing. Oh, capitalization. Yeah, ma- capitalization yes. rate, maximizing the talents yeah. of a specific area. Whereas like, They are finding 100% of their, of their sprinting talent. Yeah. And like, that, that's the only way. 
like Pennsylvania for some reason produces quarterbacks. Yes. There's something about exactly. if you have a region that there's there's evidence and there's history and there's role models and people look up to and there's there's some sort of something in place that tends to push more people into that place. My my cousin who lives in Kingston, uh, his at his kids either middle or elementary school, there is a uh, sprint coach. Right. Wow. <laughs> so it's like just like it's just like Texas in football. I mean, it's when you put that much attention on a very very specific sport, you get results. Right. There is there is zero chance if you're a if you can run a a 10-5 or faster 100-meter dash, and you're Jamaican, that they don't find you. Zero chance. They find you. Well, I'm going to leave you with this, um, just, and then we have to go. Like, capitalization rate. This is why it is incredible to me that the U.S. soccer team didn't make the even the final four of for women for um, the Olympics. And just in general, you know how we always would talk about, oh, man, imagine if Russell Westbrook played soccer. Or imagine yeah. if LeBron played soccer and we go through all that Kyrie Irving. Oh my God, what a soccer player would have been with women's soccer. We're getting the best athletes now for women's soccer. Just as many girls play soccer in America as boys from age yeah. six on. And the difference is with the men's sports, they're getting put, you know, you, you have football, you have baseball, you have basketball, there's team sports and there's different role models. I, I would say the best athletes are playing basketball right now for the most part, mm -hmm. specific types of mm -hmm. athletes are be gravitating there. In soccer, if you're a great athlete, I mean, I'm sorry, with, with women, let's say you have a great 12-year-old athlete. Well, what's she playing? Like, my daughter's a good athlete. I don't think she's not like a phenomenon, but she's a good athlete, and she p loves soccer. And the two sports she's going to gravitate to are probably soccer and basketball. And then at basketball, you hit a point where you need to have a certain height or a certain body, and there's the AAU grind, things like that. Soccer is, is probably the most inviting of all the sports. Mm -hmm. And then just talking about from a female standpoint, it would just seem like that's where our best athletes are. And now we have the infrastructure of 40 years. You have club soccer, you have all these different things. It would just seem like we should be dominating in women's soccer. Yeah. So not, to not even make the final four at this point in 2016 is just dumbfounding to me. And there's, there's a whole strategy conversation that is probably super nerdy for this, but um, the way that American teams play from the youth sports level on is they play to win. They don't play possession. Like when you see like a, a team like Barcelona where everybody, it's possession, possession, passing, quick passes, give and goes, um, triangles, mm -hmm. things like that. A lot of the youth sports teams, they just play to win. So you just put your two fast kids at the top and you chip it up ahead, they chase it, and they try to score, and you're just taking advantage of their speed and their athletic talent. And at some point, that catches up to you because everybody's fast and everybody's good. And when you watch like our women's team play, it's a lot of that stupid stuff that starts at age eight with kids just mm -hmm. trying to win. It's like I look at what's happening to both sides of, of what we have, men's soccer and women's soccer, and – it's an outcome of what I watch at my daughter's soccer teams, soccer games, when these teams are just playing to win and they play this dump and chase. And that's the way we play with our national teams. It's like we have no infrastructure. Um, and it's yeah. the same thing with basketball, with the AAU culture and the fact that we, we don't have like traditional point guards anymore and everybody's a shoot first, whatever. Um, 
I don't know. I, I feel like it's infecting soccer and basketball specifically. That's the end of my, well, my two, rant about talk, there's this. Two, there's two separate things we're talking about here. There's one necessary revolution has to be in the numbers of people who are playing a sport. Yeah. And the second necessary revolution has to be in the sophistication of the coaching and, um, uh, and preparation. And so you have, if you look at uh, countries that have historically dominated soccer in soccer, like the Netherlands, very, very small country. So the pool of players is, is tiny, a fraction of the pool in the United States. But the level of coaching, I mean, all the, you know, for a while, all the great coaches were Dutch. The Dutch reinvented modern soccer. So they, they maximized on the other end, on the sophistication of coaching and preparation. Right. And I'm wondering whether we underestimate the coaching preparation contribution and overestimate the pool of like, to my mind, Jamaica's the same way. That fact I told you about, they have a sprint coach in my cousin's elementary school, that tells you more about Jamaica's sprinting prowess than the fact that Jamaica, the size of the country. Well, the way we do soccer in this country now, it's like, if you're really good at soccer, you end up playing like what's called, you could do the ODP or you do an academy team or whatever. And... It's the same commitment that like gymnasts make when they're when they're trying to become Olympic gymnasts. You're talking like twenty hours of practice a week, tournaments every just about every weekend during the soccer season, you're traveling. And it's like there's so many soccer players in this country. What's the outcome? Like, yeah, you have a chance to get a scholarship in college. But when you look at like the actual Olympic team, there's twenty two spots. There's turnover of maybe two people a year, three people a year max. You know, versus like the, the, I think the odds are better that you'd get hit by lightning yeah. than you'd make yeah. the Olympic team. But, uh, but it's. Tell that to your daughter. Well, but it's, it's, I think team sports are great. Like, I'm so glad she's doing it. And I think it's awesome. But at the same time, like, I just don't know what kind of habits we're learning with these kids from age eight to age 14. Like, they're just, they're playing a specific style to win. I don't care if it's basketball, soccer, or any of these other sports. Um, mm-hmm. You're just playing to win versus learning how to play. And yeah. no, I and I think crucial. it catches up to you. Anyway, that's the end of my rant. Malcolm Gladwell, uh, the Revisionist History Podcast. What was your favorite one? If you, Out of the 10 podcasts, if somebody was only going to listen to one, which one would you recommend? It was the one called My Little 100 Million, where uh, I talk about the obscenity of Stanford University and and how all the money in American education goes to such a small number of institutions. Uh, that was my favorite. Oh, that's um, one of your I think passions, it might be too. The, uh, yeah, so it might be uh, it might be the one that's the most popular uh, when I look at the numbers. But oh, good. Uh, Bill was a real pleasure. This was great. I'll see you uh, next month on uh, any given Wednesday. You're on the September seventh show. Uh, I won't spoil the topic, but it's a good one. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of August. Anytime y'all want to see me again, rewind this track right here. Close your eyes. And picture me rolling. Thanks to Sling TV for sponsoring today's BS podcast. Remember the best of live TV for just 20 bucks a month at Sling TV. Lose long-term contracts and hidden fees and extra equipment. Stream over 25 live channels on your favorite devices, including ESPN, AMC, CNN, and more. Watch the best of live TV for seven days free right now at sling.com slash Bill Simmons. And also thanks to Harry's. The razor that has saved my face. 
$5 off right now if you go to Harrys.com and put in code BS. Just do it. You get a nice, awesome starters kit. What does it have? Oh, a weighted razor handle of your choice, moisturizing shave cream, three precision-engineered five-blade cartridges, and a travel cover for just 15 bucks. And you're getting 5 bucks off with the code BS. Check it out. Also, check out TheRinger.com. Check out The Ringer Podcast Network and all of our great podcasts, including Keeping It 1600, The Watch, The Ringer NFL Shows, which is heating up with a bunch of previews right now, and a whole bunch of other good ones. And then finally, my show, Any Given Wednesday on HBO. Off this week, off next week, but you can watch the first eight episodes right now on HBO Go, HBO Now, HBO On Demand. And we're going to put up a couple of new things that you haven't seen on Wednesday. A Jonah Hill speed round. And then one other thing that we made that uh, was supposed to be for last week's show, but we ran out of time. Check that out on Wednesday. And uh, we'll be back actually later this week with a second BS podcast. Oh, yeah. We're coming back later in the week. Until then.